speaks to the fact that not only were um, say the more working class professions within the tech industry better at organizing because they carried broader histories of organizing but they were also generally speaking people for whom the fantasy of the tech industry this kind of neoliberal fantasy was not available right. and hadn't been available yeah. like most of the cafeteria workers were not being told a story about how if they had enough green smoothies and worked hard enough they would become ceo yeah and that kind totally. of story that the tech industry was telling in order to sustain foundationally exploitative work practices was not really available to everyone who worked in the tech industry and so it's not really surprising that those were the people who were first able to rupture that that mm. story in order to build um yeah so those kind of two things functioning together yeah i think there's a, there's a lot of like mythology that needs to be unlearned and that yeah. is being unlearned um by by the software engineers and, and coders as as they start to organize so things like um you know, even just, I mean, in the very broad way, the idea that white collar workers don't need unions, that's a very common one, but things mm. like um, the commitment to, you know, so-called flat organizing structure, a tendency to see your bosses as your friends, yeah. oh you know, maybe God. he wears a t-shirt into work <sighs> and therefore he's like your friend. Yeah, converse and a game of ping pong at lunchtime. Exactly. Yeah. And and like the, the pizza and pinball machines and the beanbags and the snacks, things like providing free food for your workers, but only before 9am and after 7pm, mm. because then you're really hustling, you're really on the grind. Um, things like even in really large, well-established companies, project teams will work essentially as though they're in a startup with the same kind of hours and culture and sense of like, oh, we're all in this thing together and it's just us against the world and we're this tiny group of blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, I mean, you work for Google. Mm. You're not that. Um, but that culture is really seems like it's quite intoxicating mm. for a lot of people. Um, and also people move jobs. There's, mm. there's a really high level of mobility. So building the kind of trusting relationships that makes it possible for you to have the conversation with a colleague about, mm. hey, I think we should do something about this, especially in the US where it's really easy to get dismissed if you start talking about organizing a union, right? Like that's mm -hmm. another very real reason why it's been hard to unionize. People just get sacked. Mm. That's happened a lot. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, that point that you were making, Jathan, about how there just has been that really strong divide between um, the kind of full-time employed coding staff, mm -hmm. the contract coding staff and engineers who might be brought on for a specific push or a specific project. Um, and then everyone else who sustains this ridiculous industry um you know some of those people have you know what might look like nice enough working conditions although the hours are generally crushing mm. um but there's a lot of people who are who are not earning very much money and their mm. conditions are terrible and i think there's also some weirdly like culty thing around the kind of push by google and some of these other large companies where they refer to their um they refer to their place of work as a campus and, ex mm. you know, provide um, essentially everything like housing, mm. gym, a swimming pool, pool, you know, like a pharmacy, a grocery mm. store, like all of this and, and just want their workers to live there. Mm. And yeah. it's really gross. But, mm. but I think, again, like super intoxicating and, and very easy to buy into the mythology that mm. um, this is some kind of utopian dream. Yeah. Yeah. I think all of that is extremely dead on and, and and I think in part why you're so dead on with that is because as you were going through that list it's like everything almost everything on that list has a direct connection to like the academic sector yeah. where <laughs> Matt and I work and, and 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 you know Anna's part of it as well and right like like all of that it, it shows the bleed over yeah. of that kind of like that innovation and entrepreneurship flavor of neoliberalism yeah. Um, and how it, it is, it is this like big 
parasite, right? Like that, that latches on to all institutions mm -hmm. and it's doing, it's not doing the slow, the slow march through the institutions. It's doing the quick wrecking ball through the institutions. Yeah. Um, because I mean, like that's also a lot of how, you know, academics and, and universities kind of like frame the work as well, right? Like, especially stuff like that flat hierarchy, right? Mm. Um, you know, this idea that like everyone is a future CEO or a future founder, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like you're, you, you, everyone has a startup within them. You just oh need it to be actualized and nurtured by some <laughs> like angel investor uh, who blesses you with, with capital. Uh, but I, I think a lot of, we see the same exact thing in a lot of jobs, right? Especially ones that are like white collar professionals jobs mm. um you know in academia everyone's a uh not 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 a, f a ceo or founder even just like a middle manager and waiting mm. right like everyone aspires the head to, of school <laughs> yeah exactly like everyone aspires to serve the interest of capital like being being part of the bourgeois is like off the table completely mm. all you can uh, uh, really aspire to is uh, being uh, like in the good graces of, mm. of the bourgeois, you know, <laughs> it's very, it's very sad. And it's also why I think a lot of academics also do not see themselves as workers and yeah. do not treat themselves as workers, um, unless yeah. they are the like bottom most exploited mm -hmm. who have no choice, but to see themselves as workers because they are, are exploited as workers. Right. Mm. And again, like, I mean, this is, I, this conversation is fascinating for me because I, my work is tangentially connected to, to tech, but it's not really about tech at all. Um, and so what is blindingly visible to me is how colonial the logics that you're describing mm. are, right. And how much these kind of foundational stories that both the university and the tech sector tell um, are stories that have their political origins in histories of um, the global expansion, these kind of scientific stories about enlightenment progress that were told to justify mm. colonial violence worldwide, but particularly in places like Australia and the US as settler colonies. They're the founding stories of these places, are these stories of scientific progress and development. Um, and an array, a complete erasure of the violence that was required to tell those stories and to, to build these institutions. And I think similarly, like the, the thing that becomes really visible to me in the conversation about the university is also that once again, the people for whom that story about the university has never been available um, in this place, at least, are often the people for whom the story of Enlightenment progress, the story of the university as a benevolent institution is also not available. Mm. So I'm thinking of most of the Indigenous scholars, critical Indigenous scholars I work with. Um, their work is attentive to the way that the university has always been implicated in mm. making colonialism possible, right? Rather than being told a story about how the university is a place of progressive enlightenment thought where freedom is available <laughs> and you can pursue success. At, and I think that's really, so I think there are these, um, in both of these spaces, what we, we learn is from people who've been, in many cases, violently excluded from the stories, mm. the founding stories these sectors tell, right? Yeah. And, and as we know, the university is also one big meritocracy <laughs> and has no inherent biases or yeah. anything like that. Mm. I mean, I think we can draw this analogy even further, right? In the sense that like, you know, and, 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 you know, COVID uh, has made this like blindingly obvious mm. in the university sector that the, that universities, the university sector and the tech sector both also rely very, very heavily on, uh, the, the labor of, uh, like 
China and India, right? Like this, like mass anonymous labor, whether it's in the tech sector, right? Like so much labor is outsourced yep. to, uh, to, to India. Uh, you know, I, I, I saw another, you know, another name for AI is not artificial intelligence, but anonymous Indians, mm-hmm. uh, because the actual labor involved in so much so-called AI is actually hidden human labor, oftentimes like coders uh, in India who are, you know, paid nothing, yeah. right? Uh, mechan- you know, people like, you know, crowdsource work that is also mm. oftentimes uh, in India mm. um, that is paid nothing, right? To, to like train these data sets for the AI, you know, for yeah. these AI systems. And all of that, all of that labor is hidden by design, right? Like mm. when we're talking about organizing in tech, you know, we are talking about like the US and, and these kind of like, you know, workers based in the US on these US campuses. But yeah, I mean, we cannot forget that like a huge amount of, you know, they're not employees, mm-hmm. um, but they are certainly paid mm-hmm. by tech companies. And, and similarly, you know, the university sector relies so heavily on tuition money mm-hmm. from China, from India, you know, this anonymous mass of students who come in and like provide the lifeblood mm-hmm. um, for the university. And then we see what happens when that when that 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 spigot is turned off, mm-hmm. right? Like, suddenly, like, mass closures and cutbacks. And it's like, mm-hmm. um, you know, oh, it turns out, you know, universities are big hedge funds with that happen to have mm-hmm. students, but also like wildly non-diversified head funds and mm-hmm. like wildly mismanaged <laughs> head funds. And I think like I, I was thinking before, Jathan, when you were talking about um, the way that tech companies um, and even like tech advocacy groups construct themselves as being on this particular frontier, right? Like, of course, like there's inextricable from colonial fantasies. It's the yeah. idea that people who don't, um, and again, we see it in academia when people talk about the frontiers of knowledge or something. It's really um, mm. a, a, a thing that people are doing when they want to, they want to be able to claim something for themselves, right? Mm. They want to be able to, to um, get access to this particular kind of, um, a particular kind of success or a particular kind of dream um, and they create this illusion of a frontier, um, a narrative of a frontier, a story of a frontier, so they don't have to think about mm. um, on whose work they're stealing, whose land mm-hmm. they're stealing, um, whose IP they're stealing, whose resources they're stealing, whose rare earth they're stealing, yeah. to, to make to, to give this illusion of frictionless modernity, mm. right? Um, and as I think we've talked about on the show before, when we've talked about um, talked about tech stuff, that that uh, that idea of of frictionless and seamlessness um, is all about. Um, like is is carried on on the backs um, of of people that are hidden from us, mm. so that we can have this this user experience that that comes across as shiny and smooth, mm. but in actual fact the friction's just displaced elsewhere. Yeah.